James chapter 2. I was a young youth pastor, and this girl's name was Maya. Maya was five years old. She was the granddaughter of our church custodian. And Maya was full of fire. I think that's the correct terminology. And uh, the reason Maya hung out with her grandpa at work so much was because home life wasn't so great. And so it was my mission anytime I saw Maya to try and get a smile, to get a laugh, just to tease a little bit. And and I was 0 for 1,000 on that. She was a hard one. And one day I'm sitting at my desk in my office. In walks Maya. She walks straight up to my desk right across from me with her arms crossed like this. So immediately I I go into clown routine. Maya, hey, how you doing? What's up? How you doing? She was uh, stone-faced. And... uh, She looks on my desk, and there's a quarter sitting there, and she said, I'm going to snatch that quarter. I said, no, you're not. She goes, yeah, I am. And then she snatched my quarter, and I said, well, you know, if if you had just asked, maybe I would have given it to you. And she looked at me, and she said, why are your eyebrows white? They are. <laughs> I, and I, <laughs> I, I said, I, mm, I, uh, I've never been asked that before, right? And then she says to me, you're ugly. <laughs> and then she turned and walked away with my quarter. I lost 25 cents and my dignity. All at the hands of a five-year-old girl. Man, I was stunned. Never saw it coming. Never saw it coming. It's, and it's a disorienting thing whenever you get mistreated by someone that you don't expect it from. It's especially disorienting when Christians treat other people inside the church and outside the church with disdain. But when we see Christians who aren't acting like Jesus in speech and action towards other people, it, it messes with us. It inflicts damage on the reputation of the church. It inflicts damage on the relationships within the church. The unity of the church is put at risk. It's a struggle for us whenever Christian people don't act like Christ towards each other. And it's so troubling and it's so prevalent. Now, this will be of little comfort. It's always been this way. Since the first century, since the earliest Christian church, God's people have always struggled with unity and togetherness. We've always struggled with loving each other the way Jesus has loved us. So it's not a new problem, and it's not a problem without a solution. James gives us a solution this morning. Last week, if you were with us, you'll remember that at the end of chapter 1, James challenges us to love vulnerable populations care for the widow and the orphan, and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Well, he expands on that today at the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 1 through 13. He expands on that to help us understand how it is that we are to love the people in front of us. The church that he's writing to gets this wrong. They're in gross error. James isn't just plucking hypotheticals out of the air to fill space on his paper. James is addressing real-world issues present in the church, and this church is broken in the way they choose to care for people. What James wants this church to do and what James wants this church to do is to reflect the love Christ has shown to us in the love we give 
to the people around us. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to encourage you to practice the kind of radical, self-sacrificing love that you've experienced from Jesus Christ. And the way we're going to handle this, there's no neat and cutesy way to package it this morning. We're just going to follow the structure. James tells us what not to do. He gives us three reasons why we shouldn't do that. And then he tells us what to do. So I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're going to follow the plain structure of the text this morning to help us answer the question, how can I love people the way Christ has loved me? We've got a relationship problem. We've got a love problem. James is going to point us in the way of Christ this morning. He starts by telling us what not to do. So first of all, what does James tell us not to do? He says, don't Show favoritism. Verses 1 through 4, he spells out this instruction to us. Don't show favoritism. It's clear in verse 1. Isn't it great whenever the meaning of the text is just right on the surface? He says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. That's it. Now, to whom is James speaking in this passage? Quiz time. Well, First, he addresses, verse 1, he says, my brothers. This familial term is meant to include everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual designation. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 1, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, he's talking to people who are followers of Jesus, those who believe in Christ, who have trusted Him as their Savior. He makes it clear that this is a church issue. The brokenness 
in the way we love each other is a Christian issue. It's not an outside the church issue. Outside the church isn't going to love the way Christ wants us to love anyways. He's speaking specifically to Christians who get the gospel right but get love wrong. And what is he telling them? Hey, don't show favoritism. What's that word mean? Well, it's a figure of speech in the Greek that's translated into this one word in English. And it's a a good translation, the word favoritism. In the original language, it's, it's an idiom that means giving someone your face. So someone comes in, as James describes, wearing a gold ring and fancy clothes. And you give them your face. You lift your face to them. They capture your attention and your focus. The way James refers to it here, the context tells us that you're making a judgment on a person based on their appearance and their appearance alone. Someone looks good, they get your positive reaction. Someone looks impoverished, they get a decidedly negative reaction from you. And so James gives us a very clear description of what he's talking about in verses 2 through 4. Look with me again here at James's example. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. We have so many gentlemen today that fit that mode. You guys look so handsome. He says, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man you say, you stand there or sit by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So we've got this great example, a very clear example. I think that James pulls from real life. I don't, again, I don't think he's just grasping at hypotheticals. But, but we need to do a little bit of work to identify the people in the story. Who's he speaking of? He speaks first of a man who's dressed in a gold ring and fine clothes, a wealthy man, a rich man. And so is, is this rich man a believer or a non-believer? One option is to assume that this is a non-believer a person of power and reputation and wealth who comes waltzing into the gathering of the church and immediately gets oohs and ahs and special attention. And you might draw that conclusion not because James identifies the person as a non-believer here, but because of what James says later. In verse 5, James says God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. So you might think, well, if God's chosen these poor, he's not chosen this rich, and, and uh, the rich person then is a non-believer. Or in verse 7, he says it's these rich people who are slandering the name of Christ. And you might say, well, then here's some evidence that this uh, rich person is also not a believer. But the problem with that perspective, the perspective that says this rich person is not a believer, is that James never calls this rich person a non-believer. He never says this person doesn't belong in the family of faith. Or this person's out of place and just walked in for no good reason. He never does that. And what's more, nowhere in James's letter does he say that wealthy people are excluded from the church. Actually, we studied in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, the fact that James speaks to both rich and poor within the believing community. For James, the church is not made up of the materially poor only. It's for those who are poor in faith, whether they have a lot or they have a little. So I take James to be describing a scenario in which the rich man here, the one with the gold ring and the fine clothes, is actually a believer. 
And so James has to correct this church that gives undue influence and favoritism to the wealthy person among their numbers versus the poor person among their numbers. Now, what do you think this might look like at South Shore Baptist Church? How is it that we might be guilty as a congregation of the sin of favoritism? Now, to be sure, in our cultural construct, it's going to look different. For example, we don't have seats of honor in, in this room. Unless you consider the back rows places of honor. Those are, that's prized seating. Everyone wants to be, I see that hand, amen. <laughs> that's it. Uh, but we don't, we don't have a seat of honor, and, and you're not making people sit at your feet like they're some kind of stray dog. But what it looks like, I think, in our church, one expression of it, I say our church and I think in so many American evangelical churches, we have a sense of who is in and who is out among us. Who fits the mold and who doesn't. Who maintains decorum and tradition and who defies it to our annoyance. I'll give you an example from my previous church many, many years ago. While God was shaping us and teaching us how to love people who didn't look like us. We had a guy start attending the church. He was in his 20s. He was tattooed up to his neck. And when he would come in on Sundays, he was dressed in his best, which was a clean pair of jeans and a t-shirt. And then he had a couple of different hats that he would swap out, either a fedora or like this Newsies cap. And he would wear his hat all the way through church in the sanctuary. And I knew this would be a problem. And so one day, after he had attended a Sunday service, I was called into a meeting with our church leadership, and the topic of discussion was the guy's hat. The the discussion was had nothing to do about this man or where he was from or what he was doing. The discussion was, where should he be made to take off his hat? Should he remove it at the church entrance or should he remove it in the lobby before he comes into the sanctuary? So which space is so sacred that hats are not allowed? That's the discussion. What was lost in the conversation was the fact that this guy was fighting a nasty drug habit. He'd been in and out of jail. And while he had this moment of sobriety, he was reaching out for Jesus with everything that he had. And so whether or not he should have taken the hat off in the church, whether or not he would have had he been simply asked, those things were not the issue at hand. What happened in our discussions about him was he was talked about in dissenting tones and he was accused of being disrespectful to the church. It ended up in that meeting that we committed the sin of verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. That's what we had done. So what happened? I had what doctors call a fit. (laughs) And my leaders and I chose love over unbiblical man-made traditions. And by God's grace, we were shaped in that. 
And that man was well-loved in our church for as long as we had the opportunity. See, favoritism and discrimination have no place in the life of the believer and no place in the church. You and I come in here with a certain sense of these expectations, decorum, tradition, the stand-up, sit-down. We've got rules written and unwritten, and everyone just kind of knows them. You know where the coffee boundary is. You know where the hat boundary is. You know where the talking points are in the service. We know these things. And the reality is if we're going to be a church that's effective at reaching people who don't know Jesus Christ, we're going to, be a, we're going to need to be a lot more undignified. We're going to need to be okay with a lack of decorum. We're going to need to be okay with things not following our unwritten, unbiblical, man-made traditions. We're going to have to risk getting a little messy in order to love people the way Christ has loved us. Favoritism and discrimination have no place in the life of the church or in the family of faith. And why is that? Well, James is such a good writer, he's not just going to tell you, stop doing the bad thing and then leave you alone. He's going to explain to us why we should stop doing these things. So James has told us what not to do. Don't show favoritism. Don't discriminate. And then he goes on to tell us three reasons why we shouldn't do these things. So look with me again at the text. The first reason why we should not discriminate is discrimination does not reflect God's heart. Discrimination does not reflect God's heart. Verses 5 and 6. His first reason is a theological reason against favoritism. We shouldn't discriminate against people based on their appearance because, verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? What's God's posture towards these people who are on the outside looking in? Those who have little while others have a lot. Those who get stepped on so others can be exalted. What is God's posture towards these people? James is abundantly clear. God's chosen. Those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. Look, they didn't choose God. They didn't convince God of their value. He already loved them enough to save them. He loved them in their poverty. And He loved them in their rags. And He loved them in their disease and their brokenness. You see, the Roman world said of these people that they were faceless nothings. But God says of these people, I choose you to be my daughter, to be my son. I choose you to be forgiven for the punishment of your sin, to be removed from you and put at the cross. I choose you for eternal glory in my kingdom. So why should we love people who are unlike us and not accepted by society? Because that's exactly what God has done. He's chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. We are numbered among them. If He can love me, who can't He love? If He can love me, how can I not love another? Now James levels a heavy, heavy criticism of this church in verse 6. Look at what he says in that first line. How have they treated the poor? He says, you have insulted the poor. I love that James, he, he, he has such affection for this church over and over. My dear brothers, my brothers. And he loves them so much, he's going to speak directly to the point of their sin and brokenness. You've insulted the poor. 
So I want to test your ability to recognize an insult to the poor by sharing with you stories of two churches, two real-life churches, and I want to test you. I want you to tell me which church gets it right, which church gets it wrong. Both of these are churches in San Francisco. Uh, The first is called St. Mary's Cathedral. It's the principal church of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. A couple years ago, they had a problem with homeless people sleeping in the entryways to the church. The church has these four alcoves, sort of these covered entryways that make for a nice place to sleep out of the elements. Homeless people were taking up residence there night after night, and, and with that population came some things that were a little less desirable. Drug use, violence, a lot of grossness. So the church posted no trespassing signs in the alcoves. That didn't do the trick. And so then the church took more serious measures and they installed a pipe system that at various times throughout the night would dump water out into the alcoves from the ceiling above. Simultaneously, all four entryways would be doused in water. They made the news a couple of years because of this. Also in San Francisco is another church, a Catholic church called St. Boniface. They handled their homeless problem in a different way. They partnered with a local ministry, and they allow the city's homeless to sleep on church pews during daylight hours. So from 6 a.m. to 1 p.m., homeless people can come into the church. They've got pews sectioned off in the back where these people can sleep. Even during Mass, Mass is going on, people, homeless people in the back sleeping. Uh, While they're there at the church, they also have access to the church's amenities like bathrooms and blankets and clothing vouchers and haircuts. They have on average 90 people a day who are getting their best rest in a church's pew. So quiz time. Which church showed the heart of God for hurting people. The church with the clean entryways or the church with a symphony of snorers in her pews? The answer is obvious. When you love the outsider, you share the heart of God for this person whom God loves so very much. So discrimination is not okay because one, it does not reflect God's heart. Second reason, discrimination makes no sense It's a pragmatic reason. It just makes no sense. If you want to shorten your notes, it's dumb. There's no logical reason for you to treat one person poorly and exalt another person when you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7, James rattles off three rhetorical questions to make his point. Why would you show favoritism to these people among you Considering these three questions, first of all, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? So they are your oppressor. Second question, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? They are your legal persecutors. Third question, verse 7, are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? They are blasphemers. Now, Who are these rich people that James is speaking of? Again, it's hard for us because James doesn't give us all of the details. We might think, well, maybe he was talking about Christians earlier on in the chapter, but now he's talking about non-Christian wealthy people. 
We've got different options here. Maybe he's describing uh, non-Christian Gentiles who are attacking the Christian church. Maybe it's non-Christian Jews who are persecuting these Christians. Maybe it is wealthy people in the church. The, The bottom line is this. It's just not how we are to treat each other. How does it make any sense to put another person down to show favoritism to a person who has been putting you down. It makes no sense at all in James's uh, sense of things. Now that makes sense if you operate by Roman standards. If, if it's Roman culture that dictates the way you treat people, then this is, this is exactly in step with what you should do. But James calls us to love people in a different way. Not the way the world around us does, but the way we've been loved by Christ. It's not our culture that sets the standard for how we treat people. It is our experience of the cross that dictates it. There's one description I've heard quite a bit about our church. People, when talking about our church, will say it's a very New England church. And, and when you look at it from Main Street, yeah, that's right. You know, white, steeple, all of that. It, it looks very New England. But brothers and sisters, we've got to live in such a way so that the adjective New England applies only to our architecture. We can be a New England church in architecture, architecture, but we've got to be a heavenly church in relationship. The people that we encounter at work, at school, at play, in our neighborhoods, the trick-or-treaters that come to our door here in a few nights, and the people that come into our sanctuary, They ought to be loved here like they are loved no place else. They ought to be valued here like they are valued no place else. My family and I had a recent experience of this a couple of weeks ago. We got to go to dinner with a couple of dear friends. And afterwards, one of our girls reflecting on dinner that night said, I love spending time with them because they make me feel interesting and important. I mean, isn't that what people should experience when they worship with us or when they work with us or when we do business with them? That Christ compels us to leave them feeling important and interesting and loved. The struggle is this. Again, this is, this is not just a New England thing. This is everywhere we're programmed to seek out shallow interactions with each other. And there's, there's a time and a place for shallow. There's a time and a place for deeper heart conversations. So someone has said to you this morning, how you doing? And you have said, fine. That's what comes out. We're good. How are you? And you might be good. And you might be fine. That might be a true statement. But it's not always a true statement. And sometimes we've got to be willing to get past our subtle niceties and to tell the person asking, how are you? Hey, do you have a few minutes so I can tell you for real? I need someone to pray with me. Or to ask the question in a way that doesn't accept fine as an answer when you know fine isn't the answer. That you get to know people. You love them. You remember their names. You engage their lives. You're concerned about them. You don't see them, you miss them. We love each other the way Christ has loved us with value and importance to all people. One more quick reason why we should not discriminate. 
It doesn't reflect God's heart. It doesn't make sense. Third, discrimination violates the law of love. In verses 8 through 11, the final reason not to discriminate is because it violates the law of love. Look at what James says in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So James says when we show favoritism, when we discriminate, we violate the royal law. What's the royal law found in Scripture? Well, James, throughout his letter, whenever he interacts with the law, he always does so with Christ as his interpreter. He doesn't just say the law or the Mosaic law. The royal law is the way Christ's sacrifice of himself interprets the Old Testament for us. And what is that royal law? Well, it's summed up in this mega command. Love your neighbor as yourself. We'll never go wrong when we take risks to love people. But verse 9 sobers us quickly. He says, if we show favoritism, we are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. In other words, don't think you can mistreat people and God's going to be okay with that. Don't think you can please him in a thousand areas, but in this one you discriminate or you show favoritism and God's going to give you a pass. Verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. There's a unity, a wholeness to God's requirements on people who are saved. And when we break this one area of the law, we're guilty of breaking all of it. Verse 11, he gives us this kind of confusing example. He says, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. It's a tough passage to make sense of. And look, all the important people I read in preparation for this, they they don't do a very good job of explaining it. So let me add my ignorance to the pool. Here's how it makes sense to me. You don't get to say, sure, I discriminate, But at least I didn't worship an idol any more than you could say, well, sure, I committed murder, but I didn't commit adultery. You don't get credit for this other righteousness when your life is defined by a violation of the central tenet of God's will, which is that you love your neighbor as yourself. When we live that way, we're lawbreakers. We're not living as a friend of God when we discriminate against people. So we've got to love people the way Christ has loved us. And the reason we do it is because it reflects God's heart. It doesn't make sense to live otherwise. And because if we don't do it, we violate the law of love. James is such a good writer, though. He's not just going to tell you what not to do and the reasons not to do it. He's going to tell you also what you've got to do. And that's what he gives us in these last two verses. What are we to do, finally? Christians speak and act mercifully. What's the antidote to favoritism and discrimination? Christians speak and act mercifully, verses 12 through 13. Look at what he says in verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now, I don't think verse 12 is meant to spook us into obedience. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. I think that's a good thing. I don't think this is a scare tactic. I think in verse 12, James is saying, you've got to love people because you've been loved by Christ. You're judged by this law that gives freedom. 
You've experienced this mercy from Christ yourself, and so you've got to reciprocate it. I think the scare comes at the start of verse 13. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That's where you and I might, with a nervous giggle, say, (laughs) settle down, James. A little more grace in here. But all this guy's doing is repeating to you the very words of Jesus Christ. Who in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You're loved, so love. (laughs) You've been shown mercy, so give mercy in abundance and freely. And the good news at the end of this passage is mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy to you triumphs over his judgment of your sin which deserves punishment. Your mercy to other people is evidence of a sincere salvation that triumphs over the judgment that your sin deserves as well. If a holy God can love a sinful us, then there's no one we can't love. So James this morning has has told us what not to do, three reasons why we shouldn't do it, and then what to do. Don't show favoritism. It doesn't reflect God's heart. It doesn't make any sense. It violates the law of love. And instead, speak and act mercifully because mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't this the way Christ has loved us? Absolutely it is. At the beginning of our passage this morning, James makes this beautiful statement. He says that God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith. What does it do to you to know that you have been chosen by God? There may be a thousand places in this world where you are impressive, a person of reputation and influence, and that's not a bad thing. But every one of us is spiritually bankrupt at the start of it all. And you're not saved because God looked at you and said, this one's going to be better than that one. You're saved because you need it. You are dead in your sin. And how beautiful is the love of our God to look on us broken, impoverished sinners and say, I choose you to be my child, to be my daughter, to be my son. So if you're going to love people well, it starts with you being loved by Jesus. You've got to know that God came for you in the person of Jesus. And Jesus spoke love and mercy. And then he acted love and mercy by dying on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. That's the very reason we are here today. His mercy towards us at the cross has triumphed over God's judgment of our sin, the sin and the punishment that we deserve He said yes to you, and it's time for you to say yes to him. If you're going to love people right, you start by being loved by Christ and loving him supremely. And soon after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were all locked in a room together. They they were scared the authorities were going to come get them. They were huddled, hiding, shaking. And all of a sudden, Jesus was standing in the room with them. And Jesus said to them in John chapter 20, verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He was sent to love us through the sacrifice of his life. And so he sends us with love as our primary weapon to heal lives 
and change the world. Would you pray with me, please? So, Father God, we praise you for your love towards us sinners. And we acknowledge that there is nothing in us that merits or deserves it. And Father, the, the more I walk with you, the more, more I realize the depths of my unworthiness. Thank you for this kind of love that you've shown us. Lord, we confess that our values, our assessments of people are often shaped by our sinful hearts in the culture around us. Help us as a church and as believers to be better than that, to walk in the way of Christ, to risk reputation in everything we have for the sake of loving those whom you also love. Let us show equal value to those who are spiritually poor and materially wealthy and those who are spiritually poor and materially poor. Holy Spirit, guide us in your way that lives will be changed through the love of Christ. It's in his name that we pray.